Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight, supporting each other by sitting together. Tonight, I want to talk about something very basic that the Buddha taught. We call them the Four Noble Truths or the Four Noble Observations. In Buddhism, you aren't given a list of things that you have to believe in, and if you don't believe in them, then you can't join. Rather, you're, in, you're invited to investigate, to be curious and to investigate. And in particular, to investigate aspects of your own mind, heart, and body. This is the equipment we're given for this great adventure we call a lifetime. A body, a heart, and a mind. And we aren't given a manual when we're born for how to use it, and our parents try their best to give us some guidelines, however well-intentioned, about how to use this equipment, but it's a very incomplete set of instructions. So as we <clears throat> stumble along through life, we discover, oh, this works or that doesn't work, through our own experience and our own observations. And that's what the Buddha did, too. So the Buddha uh, was intensely curious and wanted to investigate the source of suffering. He saw the plight of human beings who were suffering in various ways and said, I wonder if there's a way, possibly a way to end this. And our world today is no different than the world he grew up in. We have actually more information about suffering around the world. We're flooded with it on a daily basis. Things to worry about, things that cause us distress because we feel empathy for the people all around the world, now the huge refugee problem. Mm -hmm. Of course, there have been refugees uh, as long as human beings have existed, fleeing from persecution, trying to find a place to live. But now we know about it. We see their faces. We see pictures of bleeding fathers carrying small crying children, being attacked by soldiers who are saying, you can't come into our country. And we feel for the plight of the people in the country that the refugees are trying to flee to. How can they absorb 100,000 extra people? So that's just one example from all the news that pours into us every day of this kind of suffering that the, that the Buddha said, is, this, is there a way out of this? It seems endless. It seems to be attached to the human condition. And so through his own observations, of his own mind, and then what he saw around him, he developed the Four Noble Truths, or the Four Noble Observations, that human life always involves some aspect of suffering. Two, the cause of that suffering. Now, that's really important. It's fine to say, yeah, everybody suffers, has some kind of unhappiness, pain, distress. But then what is the ultimate cause of that? Because if you can find the ultimate cause, then you have the potential to find a cure like with any disease. So he said the ultimate cause is desire. It's often translated as desire. But it really means clinging. And it also includes the opposite, rejecting. And it also includes ignoring. So we call these the three poisons, the things that poison our life and bring us suffering. So greed, trying to hold on to something inappropriately, 
anger or aversion, trying to get rid of it, thinking that'll make us happy, and then ignorance, trying to ignore the fundamental truth and ignore what happens to us when we hold on to things, try to get rid of things, and ignore things. Ignoring things has its own consequences and causes suffering. So then the next two noble truths are there is a path, there is a way out of suffering, and then the fourth noble truth is that path. And so that's the Buddha outlined that path, and one important aspect of that path is investigation. Mindfulness, that is paying attention to your life in detail, being aware of what's going on both in the external environment and the internal environment, and investigation. So if we investigate in our meditation, then we start to find out truths for ourselves that could become our own noble truths. So the Buddha said, didn't say, believe this, this is the truth. He said, investigate each of these, including suffering and the cause of your own suffering. So I want to talk a little bit about desire or clinging or craving. The second noble truth, the cause of suffering. Is that really true? So I've been uh, participating in a mindful eating course, online course, for Shambhala Publishing several hundred people enrolled. And three times during the course, there's a call-in where people can ask me questions. And then I try to give a reasonable response. And so there was one of these yesterday. And one of the issues that's come up in the Mindful Eating course is binging. Binging. So this is this overwhelming desire to eat an inappropriate kind or amount, usually amount of both kind and amount of food. And so people have asked, what do, you, what do you do when that uncontrollable urge to binge over, overwhelms you? Mm-hmm. We all know, even if we don't have overt binging, we all know that urge to, oh, something I don't feel right, I'm going to just eat a whole bunch of ice cream, and then afterwards we feel worse because we ate too much ice cream. So we actually wrote a little piece that we posted on the, on the site for the online course specifically about binging because the lessons on mindful eating don't cover binging. And what we need to do is first bring awareness to what's happening. So that's the aspect of mindfulness, bringing awareness, overarching awareness to what's going on. If we don't have awareness about what's going on, it always remains unconscious, and then we can't change it. But if we can step above what's going on and bring awareness and curiosity to it, not blame, but curiosity, then awareness itself is almost the magic medicine. Because out of awareness, we begin to have choice. As soon as there's awareness, we've stepped out of an automatic behavior, and we have choice. So to be aware, oh, here comes the overwhelming desire. And sometimes you don't become aware of it until you're overtaken by it and you carry it out. But gradually you can become aware of it earlier and earlier. So you're aware there's an overwhelming desire. And then what we recommend is backing up. So I this, I've developed this new practice. It's called beep, 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 beep. So you have that play in your mind, right? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Something is, 
I'm hurtling, I'm beginning at the top of the crest of a hill and I'm going to hurtle down at 100 miles an hour. Stop, back up, right? Back up from the, the precipice, the edge of this um, inevitable downward uh, journey. So you back up and you ask, what came right before that? Right? What came right before that overwhelming urge arose? And you can find out some very interesting things when you do that. We have a, a very subtle version of that when we're doing walking meditation during retreats. Sometimes it's a very, very classic meditation, walking meditation, where you pick a meditation path, let's say the distance, the length of this room. And you uh, pace yourself at the pace that will help your mind be quiet and open so that it's receptive and you can see what's going on. So creating some space in the mind around what's going on. And you walk at that pace, it's usually a slow pace, to the end of your path and then you stop and you do standing meditation. And if you're doing it at the monastery, usually you're standing in front of a tree or a bush, something that marks the end of your walking path. And you stand there and you stand there and you stand there and you just have your senses open breathing, and then when the impulse to turn arises, you don't yield to it. You look at what happened right before that impulse to turn arose, and see. Because these, these things don't come out of nowhere. We think they do, but they don't. There's a mechanism behind them. You just say, okay, what, what was going on right before I had the impulse to turn? It's a very interesting investigation to see what, what was happening in body, heart, and mind this unit here. And then you stand some more, and then you can even do that twice. Oh, what, what, what happened right before that impulse to turn? Because you see, that movement is karma. That's initiating karma. And if we want to be free from unwholesome karma, we have to be able to take that step back and say, ah, I was impelled, I was just about to say something, I was just about to move and do something. But what, was, what came before that? Because that's the key to unlocking. That pause and that questioning is the key to liberation, to choice. So we have this minor version or a more subtle version of it when we're doing walking meditation during a retreat when the mind is clear, but we can do it anytime. Hmm? Now with binging, it's hard. So my teaching partner for the, for the course on mindful eating, conscious living, works with a lot of people with eating disorders. And she had one woman who used to come home from work and binge. Worked a stressful job, would come home and go to the refrigerator and binge. So they worked on inserting just a little pause between, creating a little gap in that automatic behavior. So the first thing the woman did was came in a different door. So you change that automatic behavior. Came in a different door. And then the second thing that she inserted that changed the behavior was she would lie down on the kitchen floor, which was a linoleum, and put her cheek against the cold linoleum and just pause. And then she might binge. But at least there was some degree of freedom inserted. And gradually by doing that, she was able to work with that impulse to binge and see what came before it. If you create the pause, then you have a chance to be informed about what is the mechanism that's making this happen. So those little pauses are really important. 
So when you are, have this overwhelming urge to binge, and, and you know, food is just one example. So we might have an overwhelming urge to buy something. Very common in our society, right? I'm sure it's across everyone's mind. You're driving along, you think, oh, I just need to buy something. I'll stop in at Fred Meyer and see what they have, you know. And then if we're trapped because we walk around and see what they have, or I need some, I need this, but then we get in. This happens to me all the time. I think I'll just get, I'll just carry two items in my hands up to the checkout counter, and then I've got this whole armful of stuff. And somebody, clerk comes up and says, "Would you like a basket?" And yes, thank you. <laughs> so it could be it could be buying something, or it could be um, binging on movies. You know, it could be a Netflix night. I, it doesn't matter. There's lots of ways to binge. So in Buddhism, we'd be curious about what came before I, w- I decided to binge on something. And my teaching partner says, she said. Jan, can I be this radical? I'm just going to say fear with an exclamation mark. I'm just going to say fear. So that'd be something for you to investigate. Is there some aspect of fear that comes up right before an overwhelming urge arises? Very interesting to look at. Now, what are we afraid of? Well, we could be afraid of a variety of things. And I might say anxiety. It might not be as overt as fear, but it might be... Anxiety, even a little trickle of anxiety comes up before we go off into automatic behavior. It could be binging on emotions. Some people binge on anger. You know, it could be a lot of different ways of binging. So fear, as we were talking about how to write this article about binging, fear of what? And In the case of binging with eating, it's almost always fear of feeling emotions. Fear of feeling emotions. And there was one woman in a group who expressed this so clearly. She said, I would rather binge and face a beating up by my inner critic afterwards for having binged than feel the emotions that triggered the binge. Now, that's a profound insight, actually. I would rather do this automatic behavior, whatever it is, than feel my own feelings. So it's fear of feeling what we're feeling. So it could be a whole variety of emotions. So today, I, I, uh, because I'm kind of sensitized to this because we're writing about it and speaking about it, today I had an experience just, just aligned with this. So I had been waiting for several months for a doctor visit, as one does these days, to get my finger injected because I have uh, osteoarthritis in this finger joint. And it turns out you lose, you, if you're right-handed, you use your right index finger for everything, from turning keys to get indoors, to typing on your computer, to sewing, to pressing any button. You know, I've had to learn to press, different, use different fingers to do all these things. It's amazing opening jars, opening your toothpaste, brushing your teeth, everything involves this finger, this index finger. So I drove from Klatskanai to St. Vincent's, which is an hour and a half, and went in to see my doctor. And they they looked at me like, oh, what are you doing here? And I thought, "Uh uh-oh. And they said, oh, we tried to call you. Um, She canceled her visits for today. She can't see anybody today. So I'm thinking, oh, no. 
says, oh, we'll make you another appointment, you know. And he said, well, oh, looking through the appointment book, it looks like it's going to be mid-November. And I'm just thinking, my finger. I waited all this time. I can't stand it. I have to have my finger fixed. But that's the way it was, right? So I said, okay, I'll call and they'll see. They said, we'll see if we can fit you in sometime. Um, so then I f- on the way home, I just watched my mind. And my mind did several things. So my mind turned towards, well, you know, a finger that hurts all the time. That's not so bad. Look at the refugees. All they've got is the clothes on their backs and a few bags. And they've escaped with their lives. And they'll probably never be able to go back to their homes. So everything that they built and saved for, gone, completely gone. So how could you compare that to a sore finger? Yeah, there's really no comparison. That's true. But I still, I was watching my mind. And then my mind, on the way back from St. Vincent's to here, I watched my mind say, let's buy something. There must be something we need, right? (laughs) I just had to laugh at my mind, because I could see it was trying to soothe me, right? Let's buy something. No, that's okay. I don't need to buy anything, really. And then I got here to Heart of Wisdom, and I thought, I'm, I'm hungry. I need something to eat. So I went in the kitchen, and I looked around. There wasn't anything that appealed to me, and I realized, no, I'm not really hungry. It's that same impulse to soothe myself. So then I thought, okay, I'm just going to sit quietly and rest, and then I'm going to look at what's going on. So then I, this is, you know, meditation. It wasn't in a formal meditation posture. And so I just lay down on the couch, and I thought, okay, what's going on? What's going on? And there was a little voice inside that says, I'm hurting, and I thought it was going to get better, and it's not going to get better for a long time. I said, yeah, right, that's true. Yep. And then I realized the emotion was disappointment, sadness and disappointment. So here's an emotion that I was kind of pushing to the side by being brave, you know, and by thinking of other people whose plight was worse. But the real emotion was disappointment and a kind of hurt, physical hurt and emotional hurt. So as soon as I acknowledged that's what it was, then it was all right. Because it was just, that was the true emotion. When we get down to the truth, then there's a sense of release and, and lightning. Yep, that's it. That's the way it is. So in Buddhism, we are, one of our principles is our, to recognize our tendency to move away from something and stop and move towards it, to move towards the thing that we fear. So it's kind of the opposite of what the world says to do. The world says, no, buy something, eat something, you'll feel better. Watch a movie, you'll feel better. Our, our practice is to, rather than covering something up, ignoring it, to reveal it, to uncover it and reveal it. Now, I'm not saying that's easy, because our habit patterns are very strong and society is constantly reinforcing the unha- the, what we would call unwholesome habit patterns that don't help relieve the suffering at a deep level. They only perpetuate it. So resting and reflecting, essentially meditation. Our meditation practice allows us to have some space in the mind so we can investigate what's actually going on. Because our lives are so busy, 
you know, just me driving back from getting out of the parking structure and finding my way out of the hospital and driving back through traffic and getting to Heart of Wisdom. Busy, busy, busy. You can't really see what's going on. You can only see what's going on when the mind can be open and spacious. And that's the basis of our fundamental practice of meditation. Fear is very interesting, too. I was having a conversation with a young person about fear. And the person was mentioning that when they run, there's a place where they're afraid of the dogs. The dogs are kind of ferocious and lunge at them at the fence, you know, bang on the fence. And they're afraid that one day the gate will be open and the dogs will come out and bite them, as they do. Uh, Out where we live in a rural area, sometimes people do get bitten by people's dogs. And they said, oh, these dogs are like five times. And then they named a dog whose dog I didn't name I didn't know. And the person said to me, oh, haven't you ever seen the Stephen King movie about the St. Bernard that gets rabies and kills its family? I said, no, I've never seen that movie. <laughs> a St. Bernard that <laughs> gets rabies and goes crazy and kills its family? He said, yeah, it's a Stephen King movie. And I said, I've never seen a Stephen King movie. But I realized, well, but I know there's a Stephen King movie about a doll, right, that goes crazy and kills people. There's a Stephen King movie about a clown that goes crazy and kills people. There's a Stephen King movie he told me about a car that goes crazy and kills people. And I thought, and he said he had grown up on these movies, that from the age of six on he had been allowed to watch these movies. And I thought, that is child abuse. <laughs> because you learn at age five or six to be afraid of these things that are supposed to be comforting and cuddly, right? A St. Bernard, a clown, a, a doll in your house, a car that you drive around in all day. I mean, no wonder people are afraid if this is what's being fed to them. And in our little school district, they now have a big chain link fence around our little school out in rural Klatskanai because they're afraid somebody will come in and shoot up the school. But all that does is instill fear in the kids. Oh, why do we have to have a chain link fence around the school now? And My mom has to go check in at the, and then a lot of schools have metal detectors. And so Gilco Carlson, who's one of the teachers at Dharma Rain, when we were talking about this a number of years ago, actually, she said, oh yeah, the people now in utero are infused with, with epinephrine. With, with adrenaline, because the parents are so worried. Will the births go well? Did I, if I had a glass of wine, did that harm the baby? And do I have the right car seat? And should it face forward or backward? And should it be in the front seat where the, the if there's an accident, then the airbag inflates, it could suffocate the baby. So the baby's in the back, I can't see the baby, and maybe it'll die of sudden infant death before the baby's even born. There's this soup of anxiety bathing the child. And then, of course, if you grow up watching the evening news, then you're immersed in that soup every day, even as a child. So we had a resident once, a young resident, who said, resident, who said that when she was young, when in watching the evening news with her parents, any time the Dow Jones average went down, she would cry. She didn't know she didn't know anything about the stock market, but she knew that that was bad, because. Kids are sensitive, and they can pick up the emotions of their parents. So that would make her cry. And she became so distraught about things like that that they actually sent her to therapy when she was about 10 
and she actually learned to meditate. <laughs> so that was good, <laughs> because then she had a lifelong practice of meditation. And then another resident spoke up and said, yeah, he was afraid when he was young that any time a plane went over, it would bomb them. You see, so kids don't know, oh, that's a situation somewhere else. They think it applies to everybody, including them. So to be raised in this atmosphere of fear, then, yeah, you don't, you don't want to look at things. You don't want to, you don't want to explore things too deeply, because it'll just make you more afraid and more anxious. But in Buddhism, we say, no, no, to really go into what's going on here in this, in this body, you learn what you can trust. So the other side of fear is trust. And that's a whole other Dharma talk. But I would encourage you to work with fear, to work with emotions that come up, to look at, keep backing up. So this is the beep, 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 beep practice to have that in, in your head. That when desire arises, craving, aversion, or the desire to ignore, one of the three poisons, especially, I must have this, I must do this right now, overwhelming urge, when that arises, to do the backup practice, the beep, beep, beep practice, and say, oh, what was going on right before that that gave rise to this urge? And then to look at, oh, was there fear involved? Was there something that I was afraid to look at or face or work with? In particular, was it an emotion? And then to look at what can we trust? I'll talk about that another time, but what can we really trust? Another beautiful question to investigate. So what is our true desire? In Buddhism, we don't, we're not, that's a great investigation, what I just talked to you about. You'll learn a tremendous amount by doing that. I, I continually learn it tremendous amount by investigating in that way. But in Buddhism, we like to take a few steps deeper than that kind of investigation. What is our true desire? What is our deepest desire? That's what we look at. And in mindful eating, we talk about heart hunger. So we take apart the hungers into eye hunger, nose hunger, ear hunger, mouth hunger, stomach hunger, body hunger, mind hunger, which is for information and telling us what to do, and heart hunger. And so at this level, we're talking about heart hunger. So when the urge to binge, let's say, on food arises, what's the real hunger? Because the people who wrote the questions in said, I don't get why I binge. I'm not hungry. My body is not hungry. Why am I binging? And that's heart hunger. There's something that's arisen in the heart that the heart is hungry for. And then there's this automatic behavior that tries to solve it by eating or by buying or binging on movies, whatever it is. But we have to look at what is the heart's deepest desire. So what do you think the heart's deepest desire is for? Any suggestions? Love. Mm -hmm. What kind of love do you think? All kinds of love. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we'd like romantic love, but if we can't have romantic love, is that the end of the world? No, because there's many other kinds of love. And what is, how does love make us feel? 
What is it about love that we really want? Connected? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Connection, right. So the heart's true, truest and deepest desire is for connection, for intimacy. Because we're born in, into separation, and that separation is at the bottom of a lot of our suffering, that feeling of separation. So we keep trying to close the gap and feel connected with anything. And food makes us temporarily feel comforted and connected, temporarily. And buying stuff does too. And movies, you know, we kind of forget our troubles and we feel connected to the people in the movie. Maybe we even think about them for a week, but it's not true connection, right? So when we recognize, oh, my true desire is for connection, and you can check that out, like anything else you're told here, check it out. Is that your, truly your desire for connection? Your longing for really feeling connected? Then how do I solve that? How do I provide that kind of ultimately nourishing food to myself and to other people? So heart hunger is a desire for connection. We use all these other over-the-counter remedies to try to bring that about, and they're unsuccessful. So how do we feel connected? Well, we kind of circle back to meditation. Because as long as the mind is yammering, we don't feel connected. The mind sets up this barrier between us and everything else. But when we let that down and we really are experiencing what we're experiencing, be it a pain in our finger or hunger pangs or the feeling of, hmm, my belly feels full and nice, or feeling difficult emotions like disappointment, that's real, and that makes us feel connected. We're connected to reality. And that's what we desperately want. And through that, when we're at that level of, of operation for ourselves, we can connect to other people. Because those barriers aren't, aren't there. The self-defensive barriers of, oh, I'm not feeling disappointed. Oh, I don't care. Is it? Or I'm angry at that doctor. It's a stupid doctor's fault. You know, whatever, however we react. All that does is make us feel disconnected. But really being present, and meditation teaches us how to do that, really being present with what is, is what makes us feel connected and satisfies that deep longing, that deep, true craving. So right now, if you would close your eyes and connect, it's this simple when you realize that the desire is for intimacy and for connection. So first we connect through the body. So you feel where the body is connected. So the body is connected through your, probably your feet, your legs, or your bottom, to something that's supporting you. So you reach your awareness into that connection. And of course, there's no sharp line between you and what you're sitting on or what you're touching with your legs or your feet. There's a kind of fuzziness about that barrier, right? So feel into that connection. And feel how what is under you is supporting you. And how you trust that. You trust that without thinking. This seed is not going to fall away suddenly from under you. 
this floor will be there when you step out, even if your eyes are closed. And if you reach out with your hand, do that. Reach out with your hand and touch the floor. We have absolute trust that that will be there. So now with your hand reaching out and touching the floor, reach out into that connection with your awareness. Make a connection with the floor. And then bring your hand back and let it be comfortable. And now connect with your heart, your physical heart. Whatever sensations tell you, there is a heart in that chest. Feel it beating so steadily for you day and night. Your faithful companion. Now open your awareness to your emotional heart. Are there emotions in that heart right now? And if so, what would you call them? So so many emotions we could be feeling anywhere from impatience to sorrow to a simple kind of happiness to anticipation, disappointment. Could be grief. I don't know. I don't know what's in your heart. Only you know what's in your heart. So what is your heart feeling right now? without adding, adding any story to it. Just acknowledge the feelings in the heart right now. And there could be, of course, more than one. Mixed feelings. Acknowledging those feelings. And then watching to see, do they change? As you watch them, as you observe them, as you feel them. And then feel the intimacy with the air that you're breathing. So this air with each in-breath flows into the body, deep into the body in the lungs, and all the little air sacs in the lungs. And then elements of it diffuse into our capillaries and the lungs, and then throughout our body. Oxygen spreading throughout our body from each breath and then carbon dioxide being carried back and diffusing back into the air sacs and being breathed out. So to feel the intimacy of that breath coming into our body and leaving our body. Be really open to that beautiful flow And then to, with the eyes closed still, to become aware of what you see with your eyes closed. Something we almost never notice. What do you see with your eyes closed? 
how is it changing? Are there colors? Shapes, tiny sparkles, what are you seeing? So this is exactly the pause that refreshes. This is exactly stepping back from the precipice and moving into what is really true right now, letting the mind relax into open awareness, letting go of thoughts, being completely present. And then in that spaciousness, we can bring in whatever it is we're working with and see what came before desire, what came before aversion, what came before the impulse to go unconscious. And that's the way we can unlock suffering. So I encourage you to try me, 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 me practice. See what you find. <laughs>